hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one award-seeking comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark... Mark Hershaw. Yowza, it's me, Mark Hershon, your host and psychic channel for Epi 106 of Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. This here is an edition of Succotash Chats, for those of you keeping track. And this episode, our guest is comedian and podcaster Kevin Bartini. As a comedian, Kevin is also the warm-up guy for The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, which stepped into the space vacated by the Colbert Report over in Comedy Central. Larry's been killing it in that spot with his show, and Kevin is killing it too, whipping the audience for the show into a lather before the cameras come on. In addition, he has a new comedy CD out called The Unintentionally White Album, which I'll be playing a track from coming up. He's also the guy who kicked off the campaign to get the street in New York, where comic great George Carlin grew up, named after him, which we'll talk about a little bit in our chat. Later on in the show, we dip briefly into the tweet sack. Hello, Tweety. And we feature our Burst of Durst segment with comedian and social commentator Will Durst later on in the show. This week, for both Splitsider.com and Huffington Post Entertainment, I'm reviewing Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with Gilbert's guest Dan Harmon, the creator of TV's Community and Rick and Morty. In the course of that review, I mentioned that I'm also listening to Matt Gorley's I Was There Too with his guest Jeanette Goldstein from Aliens and Terminator 2, and also the Dark Angels and Pretty Freaks podcast. You can find links to those reviews in the blog entry for this episode of Succotash Chats at our home site at SuccotashShow.com. Not too much more for me to add from the world of podcasting. A couple of mentions coming up when we get into the tweet sack a little later, but I did want to mention that this past week, I started teaching a beginner-level improv class at my day job, and it's actually turning out to be pretty fun. We do it one night a week for a couple of hours after work, and I'm showing them how to use the precepts and techniques of improv to improve their presentation and brainstorming skills. It's the topic of a new book that I've been slowly working to pull together, one day, one day, and I mention it because if you work for a company you think might benefit from those sorts of techniques, I am available to speak and to teach. It's especially easy if your company is located in the San Francisco Bay Area, because I am too, but I can also travel as well. If you'd be interested in finding out more, you can email me at mark, M-A-R-C, at succotashshow.com. All right, before we chat with our guest, Kevin Bartini, let's hear a classic spot from our sponsor, Henderson's Pants. Treasured friends, remember how silly and retarded old grandpa looked waddling around the house with his pants pulled up to his chest while jiggling so much change in his pockets, you thought he might just secretly be one of those street corner Santas? Well, you never have to be jealous of Gramps again. Thanks to Henderson's new high-waisted hip-huggers. With today's young people fast running low on yesterday's styles to rip off and pretend that they invented them, Henderson's high-waisted hip-huggers are here just in time to put the hip back into hipster. Whether you sport a belt or suspenders, a vest or scraggly mustache, our hip-huggers are perfect for that seedy yet sassy, fresh-from-the-second-hand-store look. And to complete the look, Henderson's has laced each and every pair of high-waisted hip-huggers with the smell of mothballs and elder's urine. 
Even though these trousers are brand spanking new, your most dickish and judgmental friends won't be able to tell that your new pants were not recently worn by the deceased. Originally designed for Wilfred Brimley, Ed Grimley imitators, and endorsed by TV's lovable curmudgeon, the late William Frawley, Henderson's high-waisted hip-huggers are available wherever people get their clothes out of a bin on the sidewalk. That's Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 1847. And now, back to Succotash. Uh, talking to Kevin Bartini, and uh, Kevin is a comedian, a podcaster, uh, a writer, uh, a homo sapien, uh, a spouse, um, a uh, progenitor, you have a child, don't you? No, I don't. No. So you have not yet. Oh, I'll, I will call back after you've had a chance to do that. Um, okay. Give so me a minute. We'll talk to you in a little bit. Uh, Kevin, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're talking on a pre- beautiful President's Day, at least beautiful here in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, where, are we, where are we finding you today? Uh, in the, the bitter, cold... Uh, Tundra, that is New York City. Oh dear. Yeah, yeah, it's cold. It's cold. It's it's it's. Uh, I think it's about three degrees Eesh. without the wind chill factor. Holy moly, that's unbelievable! Mm. Wow, I know. It's uh, yeah. It's, I don't want to make you feel bad, but it's about eighty here right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just talking to my wife about that yesterday. You know, about this time every year we have that. Why don't we move to California conversation? Uh huh. Now, are you a California? Are you a, a New York native? No, but I'm an East Coaster from from birth. I'm from Massachusetts originally. Oh, okay, uh, All right. yeah. but I've been here in New York since uh, uh, I don't know. It's been like fourteen, fifteen years now since I moved down. So I'm, oh, wow. I'm used to this weather. It's it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't kill me as much as uh, as other people. But do you get a chance um, in, your, in your in your comedy work to uh, to get out to the West Coast? Uh, not as often as I'd like, but, uh, I, I'm hoping this year to make at least one or two trips to, to the West coast some more. Um, especially now that I have, you know, the TV stuff, uh, it gives me a little bit more, uh, a little more, well, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, frankly. Yeah. And, And just more of an excuse to go out to Los Angeles and, you know, be able to take a few meetings and stuff like that, which, which, you know, in the past, it didn't make a lot of sense financially to, yeah. to go out just to, you know, just to go and, and be another face on a couple of shows in Los Angeles at the comedy clubs didn't make a lot of sense. But now I can go out, take some meetings and, you know, so I will be I will be coming out west. Uh, hopefully, I think maybe April or May, I think we're looking at right now. Excellent. That'd be great. If you uh, if you happen to get out this way, maybe you'll get up to uh, to the San Francisco Bay Area. We've got some nice comedy shows here. Uh, not that you're coming out to yeah. do stand up, but there's a couple of nice shows out here. So, yeah, yeah. I got a couple of friends uh, from who who are comics in in San Francisco. So I will, uh, I will, you know, that's definitely one of one of the places I want to hit. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, if you uh, if you manage to get up here, or I, I get to LA occasionally, but uh, we will do a follow up interview face to face. Would be nice. Yeah, that'd be fun. I'd like that. I'd like that. But this interview is just getting started. So why are we talking about that? 
for, <laughs> for, for those of you who are uh, unfamiliar with Kevin, which uh, included me up until I recently uh, listened to your second album, uh, your mm-hmm. CD, the, uh, the Unintentionally White album, which just came out, I believe. Yes. Uh, I, uh, I, I'd heard your name and I think I'd heard you on a couple of clips we played of other people's podcasts in which you were a guest perhaps. Okay. Uh, but you have your own podcast. Yes. And watch, yeah. tell, tell us a little bit about that. I do. I actually am heading out after this. I have to go down to the studio to record a couple more episodes of it. So, uh, uh but yeah, my, my podcast is called the, um, the Movie Preview Review Podcast, and the premise is that on every episode we review uh, new movies based on having only seen their previews. So it's it's a lot of fun. I have um, I have a couple of co-hosts and, and regulars regulars on the show, and then on every episode we have a, a comedian, usually a comedian as a guest, mm-hmm. uh, to join us and. Uh, it's just kind of got to feel like you're, you know, like you're at the movies and, and before the movie plays, you're sitting with your friends and, and the previews are coming up and and everybody's just kind of uh, lending their two cents of whether they want to see the movie, what they think about the movie. But it just so happens that uh, this time the friends you're sitting with, with are four or five professional stand-up comedians. So the, the commentary maybe is a little bit funnier than than uh than normal that's um, great now now are you reviewing the trailers or are you you doing sort of a review of what you think the movie's going to be like based on the trailer exactly <laughs> like ba- yeah we're reviewing the movie based on the trailer because there's really it, you know they give away so much in the previews uh now that um you can tell with with pretty pretty good certainty uh exactly what you're getting into in fact i originally um, when I started doing the movie preview review podcast, it was just me, and I was just reviewing the movies solely on the previews, and I would do it just into my MacBook and record it, and and I would write an entire review, which was like 12 or 15 minutes long of all jokes at the expense of the movie. Um, and it started with movies like the third Meet the Parents movie, like the, <laughs> the Fockers, and and the second one was like Big Mama's House 3. And, and literally, there was nothing you couldn't... There was no surprises about those movies. You knew exactly what you were in store for. And, uh, <laughs> but the original concept, it just wasn't sustainable. I, I, I could write, you know, first of all, to, to do it and to do it and make it funny and to be able to write, you know, 10, 12, 15 minutes worth of jokes about it, the movie has to be bad. It, it's impossible to write 15 minutes of funny material about a good movie. Um, you have to come at it, you know, with a bit of an attitude, and mm-hmm. and uh, after a while, you know, there just aren't that many terrible movies, and I didn't want to be critique. You know, I didn't want to be doing the same joke again and again, and I didn't want it. I didn't want people to listen in knowing that I'm going to hate a movie. So we came up with the new concept. Whereas, you know, I have a couple of regulars on the show who have who are comedians as well, but have different opinions on films. Like they're, you know, the other guys are into the nerd culture and into the, um, into the superhero movies and stuff like that. And, and that's not my tastes. And then my wife is also one of the regulars and she likes the chick flicks. So, um, and then whatever our guest is into. So now we watch the previews and we're all throwing in our opinions and we end up butting heads and having arguments and, you know, or sometimes conversations that go off onto a different, a different way. So um, how, the, how, how long has your podcast been on? 
Uh, I started it originally. It's been on and off. I started it a couple of years ago, and then uh, it got very popular. But like I said, it wasn't sustainable, and it was a lot of work. And then gigs came up, and that one went by the wayside. And then over the last couple of years, I brought it back here and there, but kind of... I just kind of half-assed it because I would get as soon as I would get going, I would get hired on some other job and have to turn away. Okay. So now, just as of 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 like literally this this new year, um, we we're committed to you know we've rented a studio, we have a brand new feed, we've got the guests booked out. So every Monday night, I'm recording two episodes, and now it's it's in a format I like. It's with people I like, and it is. Uh, it's here to stay. So I, I've, you know, I, I finally uh, just just kind of taken the bull by the horns and just decided, you know what, this is really good, and I, I want to commit some time to it and and build it up. So we're our goal is to, you know, to to spend the, the first six months just banging banging it out, and then uh, hopefully be able to start to monetize a little bit, take it on the road, do some live versions, get bigger guests. That's great. There is a now. I applaud that you're able to recognize sort of the limitation of, of the original format and blow it out a little bit. There was a, a podcast when I first started doing uh, Succotash, which is uh, a little over three and a half years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a podcast called Cinematic Method um, by uh-huh. uh, five, four or five guys who none of them were comedians. Uh, uh-huh. but, but their premise was very similar to what you were doing, where they were doing these reviews based on trailers. But they uh-huh. uh, they ran into the same problem you did originally, which was, well, how is this different every week? Uh, right. And they ended up kind of giving up on it. They uh, they switched formats entirely and moved away. And they I think they they tried to hang on to doing the, the, the thing as a, like a segment you know, once per show, but, uh, yeah. And I always liked the idea. So I'm, uh, we're going to, we'll, we'll have played a clip leading into, uh, into our interview today. Oh, cool. Uh, so I'll definitely be familiar with it. And you were, you were starting your next season. So the last time I looked on, on right. iTunes, there was just a teaser that the new season was starting. Exactly. Yeah. We had to, we had, we also, um, we had to take down our old feed again, because I had been half-assing it and whatnot over the years. Uh, we ended up, the, the feed went bad and there was technical problems. And so we had to take our old feed down and put up a new one. So we put up this little teaser just to, as we were technic, you know, working out all the bugs. So right now, um, if you, if you find it on iTunes, what we did is we've got the new feed, it's got the teaser up and it's got, uh, it's got, um, I put like 20 of the best of the old episodes, which were marking NPR classics. So those, okay. are the, those are the original format, and that, that way they're just all there at the bottom of the feed. People can, can get them if they want. And then uh, the new format, the new interviews, um, we started uploading just today, uh, which is um, Columbus or uh, President's Day here, uh, and we're going to be loading up one a day all week, and then after that. After that, it'll come out every Wednesday, or I'm sorry, every Thursday, new episodes. Excellent. Um, yeah, so hopefully, I haven't seen the new one. I know I uploaded it at midnight. Uh, it hasn't made its way onto iTunes uh, yet, which is annoying. But, oh, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it'll, it'll get there. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about it, you know. That's great. That's great. Well, yeah. I'll, give it a, I'll give it a listen, and I'll, uh, I'll yeah. talk it up. Um, you know, I do reviews for Split Cider dot com and uh, Huffington oh, cool. Post, so I'll uh, I'll get a review of that up there for you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, but let's find out, um, you know, sort of 
where Kevin Bartini came from in terms of how he got into podcasting, I guess from the world of comedy, but what, yeah. got, what got you into doing stand-up originally? How old were you? Oh, well, stand-up was just what I wanted to do since I was a kid. Um, I, I started, I think I was about 19 when I started, and uh, but I had been, it had just been like all, I'd, literally all I'd ever really wanted to do. Uh, I was I was a child of the 80s, and that was the time where you know, all these brand new cable channels all were showing stand-up because um, it was a cheap show, easy to produce. Uh, and so I was, I was just, as a, that was what I was a nerd for. You know, I was never into uh, sports too much or, or the Star Wars and that kind of stuff. My thing that I nerded out on was, was comedy, and I, I got as, every bit that I could. Um, then I was also the, the funny kid in, in school, and so I just always wanted to do it. So all growing up throughout my childhood, I couldn't be a stand-up, but I, was, I, I acted, and I did, um, I did community theater in grade school and high school and, and summer stock and stuff. And the idea was that um, I would do theater so that when, it, when I was old enough to be a stand-up, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have stage fright. I would be comfortable on stage. Smart, and, smart and also... You know, the other half of that was, since I did grow up in the 80s, figuring, well, I better learn how to act because, you know, I'll obviously get my own sitcom because every comedian back then had their own sitcom. Um, but of course, I, of course. Yeah, but I started comedy pretty much the day Survivor came out and that <laughs> sitcoms and it's all reality. So That's right. That that's right. Me. So you got, you got to basically help leech the life out of the old um, comedy boom. Because yeah. it all disappeared to the t- TV shows, and yeah. now, now you're back in it when media has changed tremendously, right? I mean, your yeah. your opportunity now. I mean, look, you've put out two CDs, you've got a podcast, you're writing now. You're on staff for um, the new show on Comedy Central. Yeah, the nightly show. The nightly with Larry show. Wilmore. Right, and uh, so how did that come about? Well, that came about. I've been in that company in their family now for a, a number of years. I think 2011 or 2010, I got hired by The Daily Show. Um, and, and it's John Stewart's production company produces The Daily Show, The Nightly Show, and Colbert Report. Right. So um, basically, I'd been, a, you know, I'd been a stand-up on the New York scene for quite a while. And uh, I had, you know, known um, a couple of guys who worked for the daily show writers and producers and stuff like that who also did stand-up so um at some point a an opening on the staff for the for one of the audience warm-up guys opened and uh you know my name got thrown into the you know onto the pile and so um I, i i did an audition i did one episode for the for the daily show and i was you know i was just told listen we all like you uh but John Stewart makes the call, and if if you if you don't do well, or if you're not to his taste, or he doesn't like you, then you know then that's it. But if he likes you, then you're in, and and you'll well, I was I you'll start out as the backup, which meant when the regular guy couldn't be there, I got called in like a substitute. Right. And uh, fortunately, John Stewart liked me, had a good show, and uh, I started I started backing up their warm up guy, and then. Uh, you know, after about a year or so, um, I knew what would eventually happen. It was inevitable that 
a spot opened up at Colbert, and with these shows in the new in New York City with warm up stuff, it's really once you're in the door, you're in the door. They don't post on you know, in backstage or on Craigslist looking for a warm-up guy. They just, right. yeah. they go with who they know and who has a reputation. So they call other shows or or whatnot. So, uh, you know, Colbert is the same production company. I, I just knew eventually something would open up over there and I'd get to start over there. So, you know, I did. I, I, um, I moved over to Colbert and did that for a couple of seasons. And then, um, and then the nightly show, you know, replaced Colbert and, um, Again, nothing was guaranteed. Uh, you know, they they tr- they actually had hired a different comic, and he uh, he didn't work out. The, his first show didn't go well, and they had me in to check me out. The second show, and the uh, the Daily Show's main guy in on another. So uh, you know, they had three comics do three of okay. the warm up shows, and uh, they ended up choosing me out of out of that group. So I'm now I am the guy, the main. You know, it's my my All gig. Right. Now, if I go on the road, they'll have to find somebody else to come in and back me up. So okay. it's congratulations. To, yeah, thank you. Thanks. Fantastic. It's uh, my first steady paycheck since 1999 when I started comedy. That's wow, pretty cool. that feels great, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. And it's a and it and you know it. What's great is it's a great show to be a part of and a great company to be a part of. Um, John Stewart and and has a knack uh, for hiring people who are, you know, talented and confident and, and just good people to work and to be around. So I've, I've always had good experiences. I've never had run-ins with people. You don't, you know, there doesn't seem to be a bad apple in the bunch, That's uh, which, which makes going to work nice. And then, and then on top of it, I, I was a fan of the daily show since it debuted since the Craig Kilborn days, you know, and, 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 and of course then once John took it over and found his footing, I became an even bigger fan and, and and so I was a fan of that show for probably, uh, what was it, 12, 13 years before I got to work for it. And same for Colbert. He'd, he'd been on for six, seven years. And so I, I, I love the fact that I'm, I'm a part of a show that I'm a fan of and going to work each day is, is not, you know, is fun and isn't drudgery. Because I could just imagine having to do warm up for a show like, you know, I always use this as an example, nothing against them, but like the Wendy Williams show or something, oh. <laughs> like that, which tapes in New York where I'm not a fan of the show. I know for a fact that half the audience doesn't even want to be there. They're like, you know, cajoled from on the street or, or given $50 or a turkey sandwich to be there. So it's much harder to warm a show like that up. And then you have to sit there and watch a show you don't like. So I, uh, I, I have I, I have such an amazing job in that respect. I'm I'm very very lucky. I understand it is a good yeah. a good turkey sandwich though. It's, it's a, a yeah. You know what? You'd be surprised. That's what I've heard. I've it's heard. a good turkey sandwich on Monday, but it's the same. <laughs> with my now, as I've as I've been looking at your website, um, mm-hmm. you uh, you also did warm up for uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire at one point, apparently. Yes. Yeah. That was the that that was my first warm up job i think so i so when i when i got the gig at at colbert i'd already or i'm sorry at at the daily show i had already had some experience um doing warm-up which helped but i did about i did i did about eh, they tape five episodes a day so i just filled in for somebody for like a week or two so i did about 30 episodes of 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 who wants to be a millionaire so we have a little bit of a shared heritage in that oh yeah were you a guest on the show I i was not a guest on the show the executive producer Michael Davies, who started the show, used to work yep. for me as a writer 
on, oh, a, no kidding. on a game show uh, for Merv Griffin Productions. I was the head, oh wow. I was a head writer, and he was uh, he was the guy underneath me. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> so uh, that, I met him. He was actually there one day, which is rare for him to be there because I believe he's based out of London, I think, or, or Los Angeles. But one of the weeks I was there. Um, it was during the Olympics, and mm-hmm. Meredith Vieira was overseas um, covering the Olympics, so they had guest hosts throughout the week, and Michael Davies was there, uh, specifically the day uh, that, that Kat Dealey was was the, the guest host. So oh, okay. I'll, I'll let you guess his motivations for why of all the days and all the guest hosts he wanted to be there for Kat Dealey, but of I don't course. blame him at all. <laughs> no, I don't blame him either, but uh, yeah, so that's... Uh, so we've got that in common, Michael Davies. That's funny. Um, what uh, before you got into stage acting and things like that? Was there a, any other direction you wanted to go in? Uh, what What is it about the performance life uh, that was a draw for you? Um, no, there really wasn't. I mean, literally, I was about probably six years old when I decided I wanted to be a comic. Um, it was never. It was a thing. Was my I, I was. Like, it's, it sounds dicky to say, but I was the funny kid. I was always the funniest kid by, by a long shot in, in school. And um, my father is very funny. And I remember, I have this me- memory where I couldn't have been more than three years old, but we were in the backyard of my grandmother's house, and they were having some sort of a party. And um, I remember this formation of, of guys standing kind of in a, you know, in a, it, it angled all, all in an arrow formation and my, my father being in the center. And, and I don't know what he was saying, but I remember him, I remember that rhythm of, of him saying something and then last, da 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 last, da like he was doing stand-up, but he was just holding court amongst his friends. And I'm, that, that's like one of my earliest memories of my dad. So, um, so that made a big impact. And then once I got to school and saw that really quickly that I was the same way, that I was mm. the funniest one and that people would be around me and I could get that. Um, then then it wasn't long after discovering that that uh, I started started seeing um, when Nick at Night began, they would show uh, reruns. 30-minute reruns of classic SNL, the original cast. And so I would watch that when I was six or seven and watch, you know, Gilda Radner was my first crush and, uh, you know, dressed up for Halloween as the Blues Brothers and stuff. And, 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 and I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. And then I started at the same time, like I said, seeing the stand-up uh, on television. So it, it, it was just, it, it dawned on me, well, this is a career. People can actually do this. This is a job. You can be funny for a living. And that was it for me for, for my entire life. It's really, I, I, um, I, I almost never wavered. If, if I didn't, if, if the only thing that ever made me waver from the idea of being a stand-up that scared me was uh, when I watched Seinfeld and he had that character of Banya who was, <laughs> Who was who was a hack comedian who Jerry despised because he was a not a good comedian and a hack comedian, <laughs> and that was the first time that it dawned on me that you could do this and not have the respect of your peers. So 
I, for a long, for a while, like, you know, I was, that was my biggest fear. What if, it wasn't, what if I tried and I bombed? I knew there was going to be bombing. It was, what if I did this and all these guys who I idolize and I look up to, what if they thought I was a hack? What if I couldn't cut it? And that, uh, that was the only thing that ever gave me pause. And, uh, who were your uh, your influences early on when you uh, started getting the the taste for stand up? Definitely Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, definitely um, back when I was young, you know, he was on all the time. So it was Jerry Seinfeld, and I would see guys like Dom Irera and uh, Bobby Bobby Slayton and Bobby Collins and Paula Poundstone and Rosie O'Donnell. You know, all the big comedy stars of the eighties. I really liked a guy named Dennis Wolfberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is who Dennis, is Dennis was great, great guy. He was hilarious, very, uh, very distinct, very original. Uh, unfortunately, died way too young. Yeah. Um, and not of a drug overdose. That kind of thing. When you talk about a comic from the eighties who died young, <laughs> yeah, that no, was a med- it's a medical condition. Yeah, he had a medical condition, and he like went out on top. Like he was like the comedian of the year, and then you know was gone. And, and just uh, to your point, he was one of those comics that was absolutely beloved. By other right, right, absolutely. So those guys, and then um, as I got a little older, then I got into you know George Carlin, and then I started to see Lewis Black come onto the scene, and, and John Stewart, and guys like that. Um, and then once I became a stand-up comedian, I started you know studying the craft a little bit more. That's when I got into Woody Allen and and um, Bob Newhart, and then the whole crew of comics who are currently working, who I was looking up to, you know, like guys like Dave Attell and Nick DiPaolo and Todd Berry and mm-hmm. guys like that. That you know, Well, it's, it's definitely a, an interesting education um, to see mm-hmm. how the different sort of schools of comedy evolved. You know, you talk about people yeah. like Newhart and whatnot, which is a totally different form of delivery and yep. everything about it is so different from Carlin, which is again, yep. very different from, you know, the way comics today are much more very story oriented, um, uh, not so much the, you know, set up punchline, set up punchline thing that was going yeah. on in the seventies and early eighties. Yeah. And so well, I think that Newhart was very story oriented, story oriented. It was he's the kind of style that I like, which I try to emulate a bit, which is you you have a you have a bit, which is a story, but then it's just set a punch, set a punch throughout. I mean, the the driving instructor or the the uh, the night watchman whose first night on duty is the night that King Kong attacks. I mean, that's a whole story. It's just played out in this way. Yes. It's, it's, I mean, you know, comedy is always sort of, I guess you could say about stories, but his was that, you well, not even unique. There were other people doing it like Shelley Berman, that, that perception and perspective of doing it from Mm -hmm. that first person thing where he, his gimmick was the telephone telephone or yeah, you're only getting one side of a conversation. That's right. That's right. Which is kind of genius. You know, it's absolutely kind of genius where this, sometimes the setup isn't even being done by, by you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the payoff isn't being done by you, you know, it's all kind of this interesting reactionary element. He's so great. And he's a guy like, uh, I'm always, when I talk to young comics, I'm always like, you guys should really check out Bob Newhart, really get into him. Cause he's one of those guys who definitely, I feel doesn't get his due 
in when you're talking about legendary comedians. He's a guy who, when they talk about that Mount Rushmore, he's to me he's he's the fourth head on the Mount Rushmore is Bob Newhart. He people, you know, he was so successful in television and his sitcoms that you know a lot of young comics don't even realize he had a career as a stand-up. But he was so influential on what we do that it's it's it became like a hack cliche to set up a bit like and I think it would go a little something like this. Like he invented that and then people ripped him off so much that that became a hack thing to do. And you the, know? Fu- the funny thing was he'd only been doing comedy for like two years when his first oh, yeah. when his first album came out. Um, no, not his first album, the uh, the Button Down Mind. That was the first time he'd ever done it live in a nightclub. He started like as a DJ, so right, they were yeah. kind of there were like radio bits and stuff, and that he then turned into doing this nightclub thing, and he ended up win- winning the winning a Grammy and becoming this huge sensation. Yeah, like, so like every comic should so, should be wildly jealous of his over. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I, I mean, he was he was sort of he was sort of like the. Uh, the YouTube of the day. It was like he yep. took a skill that nobody could even see, which was a guy mm-hmm. doing his style of comedy on the radio and then turned right. it into this stage act. Uh, right. And really just, again, caught people's interest because it was so different from what they'd been seeing. You know, up until then, mm-hmm. it was all sort of distilled vaudeville at that point. It was the late right. fif- late 50s. Uh, exactly. And so people were still getting stuff that was kind of like Milton Berle and mm-hmm. uh, comics like that that – all the stuff was very sort of not not even original. It was all you know passed around. You tell exactly tell jokes that other people told, and it wasn't even stealing. It was just no. I'm going to tell the joke about the grandmother. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it was the same mentality of of um, so, you know uh, the the guys like um, Frank Sinatra and guy and, and and like Tony Bennett mm-hmm. would do the same standard songs. They were called standards, and it wasn't. You know, you're doing a nightclub over here, and he's over there. You're doing the same songs. You weren't ripping each other off. Jokes were thought of in the same way, and it was because there was no internet. There's barely any television, so the people, when you're going to their town, you're doing these jokes. It's the first time they're hearing it. It yeah. doesn't matter that Shecky Green is doing it in Cleveland, while you know, while while Shecky Blue is doing <laughs> it in Columbus, doing the same act because you've never seen it before. That's but, right. Yeah. You know, yeah, Bob Newhart changed that, and then, you know, guys like, um, you know, in the, the, the 60s and the 70s, that's when George Carlin and Robert Klein and Richard Pryor, and, of course, they were all, all taking their cue from what Lenny Bruce did before them. That's but, right. yeah, this is, it, it, it's only, I mean, stand-up the way we know it as an art form is really only about 50 years old uh, in the, the its new format because before that it was it was it was vaudeville that then became the the borscht belt stuff that's right that's yeah. right yeah um, what about um, do you have siblings brothers sisters i have a sister and i have a brother who passed away i'm sorry that's um, right. but uh, what, uh, what what what's your parents what was your parents uh, take on you wanting to be a comedian my parents have been nothing but supportive of it. My, I think my father is vicariously living through it a little bit. I think he's he said many, many times, you know that that when he was when he was my age and I, as I started, you know would it would have been the early seventies, and there really wasn't a stand up comedy circuit or scene. Um, you know there was so the uh, it wasn't a. Um, it wasn't even an idea to become a comic. And if he had said to his parents, 
I'm going to move to New York City and become a stand-up, they would have called, you know, thought he was crazy and tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, so <clears throat> when I came along, um, it, it was an established thing. And, and uh, I think in another life, my dad could have could have easily been a stand-up and uh, would have been successful at it. So he and my mom has been nothing but supportive. Um, and, 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 and they, you know, throughout the years, um, we treated it, because I never went to college. I did a couple of semesters at community college, but I, I you know, wasn't a great student, and, and, it, and I just wasn't a college material. Um, I was smart, but if I wasn't interested in something, it, it was just over before it began. So they and I looked at my early career um, as my college, and that you're going to spend, you know, we figured that we'd, I'd spend eight years um toiling, doing open mics, working in clubs, learning, 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 um, busting my hump, just like I'm going to college. And if I, and, and whatever debts I ran up on, you know, Visa and MasterCard and all that, well, that's my, that's my student loans, basically. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. nice, except the, yeah. the, the, the interest rate's just slightly more favorable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we, you know, and, and so they were very supportive, especially in those early years. You know, I, they would just send me money from time to time. They, you know, I didn't, uh, I, I knew that I wasn't going to starve, that, that if, if push came to shove, I could call home. And, and, and thankfully, I didn't have to call home all that often. Um, but they, they made sure I was taken care of. And, and they just, you know, they, they delighted in, in watching and what's great now is that they've they that they've gotten to to see the payoff of it. Um, just to give you a one one nice thing that happened this past summer, the night um, that I recorded my new album, I I did this one back home in the Berkshires, and uh, we I rented out a, a space and we did three I did three shows in one night um, that we recorded to to make my special, mm-hmm. and um, it was just. For them to, to see this payoff was that weekend, that was a Saturday night, the Friday, that Friday morning, the Boston Globe did a, basically a full page with a picture profile on me. So they had me in the Boston Globe <laughs> nice. Friday morning, Friday night, I made my debut on ABC at nine o'clock and what would you do, which I got to sit in the living room, watch with them, my sister, my three remaining grandparents, my nieces and nephews, everybody watched that. Then the next day... They're up there, and I'm headlining these three shows, and I kill on all of them. I only found out later that they were in the audience and watched each and every one. Oh, you know? that great? And then in between, they were out in the bar area, glad-handing. My father had the Boston Globe article framed and was carrying it around <laughs> for people. You know, they were just – you could tell how proud they were, and, and it was nice that, that you know – I got to, they got to experience that and that, it, that it, yeah, the idea, it paid off, you know, and I mean, even today, literally as we speak, the, uh, my hometown paper just today did a full page article on me because of the new gig. So they're, they're really getting to see the payoff of it. And, and, and also, like I said, three of, three of my four grandparents are still alive to see this stuff happening. And that's, what's important to me is, is that my family gets to, you know, gets to enjoy the, the fruits of the labor a little bit. That's great. Now, have any of them figured out how to download your podcast? Oh, sure. Oh yeah. I had a, can I have, not, my, can I have my, can I have my mom call them then? Cause my mom <laughs> has never heard my podcast. We had to, well, I, okay. 
figured out how to is maybe generous. I know <laughs> I've shown them. I know my brother-in-law has shown them. They, they're getting better with the computer over the last couple of years with you know learning and figuring out Facebook and stuff, mainly because they have grandkids and they want to see the grandkids' pictures and they want to Skype with their grandkids and stuff. Um, but certainly, you know, the, they, they, they keep on top of my career and what I have posted and, and they listen to the podcast. And yeah, they're, they're great about that. What, um, with all these other things you're doing, what was it that steered you into a podcast as yet another sort of outlet for your creativity? Well, it's kind of that thing. Every comic has a podcast, but, um, well, that's, the, really law. that's the law. Really. Yeah, pretty much. You, you, at some point, you know, you just, you have to have one because to be a comedian and a working comedian, not only do you have to be funny, but you have to be able to show the comedy clubs on the road that you can draw an audience and a podcast. And if you can build a following on a podcast is a good way. And uh, so <clears throat> I had I had in the back of my mind that at some point I should I should do one. I need to do one, but I needed to come up with a concept. And then I had um, I had just wrapped up. Um, a writing project for uh, for HBO, and uh, I had been writing for some comedians who were appearing on like Countdown with Keith Olbermann and Fox News's Red Eye and stuff like that. I I I'd been getting quite a bit of work writing, and I I at the time had built this muscle up that, especially like with with how it would work with the Countdown was. Um, Olbermoon would have a comedian on for the fifth segment uh, of the of the, the the show, and you would. You would find out, uh, you know, they, they went live at 8 o'clock, and you would find out at about 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock what the topic was. So then I would have to go research the topic, learn all about it, and then just write as many jokes as, as I could that I would then, you know, give to the comedian who would, um, at about 6.30 or 7, who would then have to, you know, look at them, pick what he likes, get ready for the show so that he would appear to be coming up off the top of his head with these gems. And that's how I was making some, some side money. Um, but I built this muscle that because of that, that, you know, give me a topic, give me a couple of hours to research it. And then I can write you, you know, a couple pages worth of jokes. So I had this muscle and one day I went to the movies and, uh, I don't remember what movie I was going to see, but I remember seeing the preview for Little Fockers, followed by Big Mama's House 3, followed by, I think, a preview for something like Medea's Family Christmas or whatever the hell. And I, it was just like that. It, it just, off the top of my head, I just, the name came to me, the movie preview review, and I, I just, you know, it, I just realized you can tell everything you need to know about a movie um, and especially when I was watching like the little Fockers, like I just, I, you know, you, I got passionate about it. Uh, just sitting there, I got riled up. I got so angry and so upset that I'm watching a preview for this movie that Robert De Niro, who's one of, you know, one of my favorite movie stars ever throughout my whole childhood and how great was he and what a legendary talent was in this preview for little Fockers was First of all, I'm pretty sure took a wiffle ball to the nuts. So he did a nut shot. And this is Taxi Driver. This is Raging Bull. Took one to the nuts. And then, literally, another cut, They were he was doing a you talking to me thing. So not only is he lowering himself to take one in the nuts, he's also ripping off and reminding us that he was once great and ripping off his iconic stuff. And I 
was I was so upset by that that um, I just I don't even know if I stayed to watch the movie. I'm like I gotta write all this out. <laughs> I'm gonna put it out as a podcast. I'm gonna review the movie based on the preview and. You know, and the name just kind of popped, and it was a catchy name, and it has this nice rhyme to it, and the rest, as they say, was history. Now, do you get a chance to listen to many other podcasts? You sound like you're pretty busy, and generally in talking to podcasters, as I do on this show, most people really don't get the chance to listen to that many podcasts, because it's just, it's difficult. It's, uh, I know. do, though. Yeah, I do. Um, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a kind of guy who doesn't, um, I don't like... Uh, I don't like dead silence. I don't like just sitting on the subway without having, without being able to read something or play solitaire on my phone or, you know, um, and, and listening to podcasts helps with that. I listen to podcasts as I'm going to sleep. I listen to podcasts as I'm on the treadmill and I listen to them as I'm driving to, to road gigs. So uh, I, I, I try to check out new stuff here and there. There's the ones that I'm, I'm a fan of. Um, I, I, I like it as a medium very much. Uh, and where do you think it's it's going? Because I mean, now now you know we've been doing podcasting for uh, a little over a decade, off and on, uh -huh. but it's really sort of hit an upswell in the last six or seven years, and just shows no sign of really slowing down at this point. So where do you yeah. where do you think it's uh, it's going from your perspective? Well, I mean, I think it's. It's where it is. I think it's the future of broadcasting. Um, it's it's podcasting the freedom that you have, the lack of language restrictions, the fact that you know you don't have to pay, um, you don't have to pay uh, a subscription to listen to them. Um, that you can listen to something and it, and and they'll put a podcast out that it's an hour or ninety minutes or even some of them are only like ten minutes and that's great too. Um, I, it, it makes it makes terrestrial radio now unbearable. It's like the way it's like the in the same way that watching a, a movie now we're so used to watching Blu-ray and DVD in the high quality that you know, have you recently just thrown a VHS tape in and watched it? It's like what the hell were we ever doing with this scrappy <laughs> you know, it's like we might as well be watching a black and white kinescope for the for for how our tastes change. So now if I got terrestrial radio on you're hearing, you know, you're hearing these these DJs that are all the same doing the corny jokes, telling you the time and the weather, and then cut to a, you know, some Taylor Swift song and then some commercials, and it's like that just ate twenty minutes of my life. Podcasting is the way to go. You get what you want. It's free. Every once in a while, you listen to the to an ad, but that's fine, and you can even skip through the ad if you want. And I think as a podcaster, the model that I follow is Adam Carolla and I follow uh, Doug Benson. And, and what they do is they put out a, a podcast that's entertaining. They monetize it by throwing some, uh, some ads in here and there, but not too, too many, not beating you over the head with it. And then they take the show on the road and can go do it at a club or a theater and, you know, and, and, and the, and that's where the lion's share of their money comes in. Yeah. So that's what I'm hoping to be able to do with this is to take movie preview review, take it to a comedy club, do like a Thursday night, um, tape a couple of episodes, maybe with a local celebrity or or whatever in whatever town, and then stay and do the comedy club that weekend as the headliner, you know, and and monetize it that way. Sure. 
Um, that, that's our that's our plan, and and you know the yeah get some ads or, or something. But right now we're just in the phase of everybody's doing it for free, and because we enjoy it, and we believe in the product, and we believe in the uh, and, and and we believe that that if we work hard and 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 we keep doing a good job, that that the money comes down the road. Well, it's a great uh, it's a great model you have in mind. But uh, to get back to what you're talking about, terrestrial radio is interesting because yeah. you know a lot of terrestrial radio stations are trying to jump on the podcasting bandwagon by repurposing right. the shows. And you can really tell what a vacuous medium it is uh, the yeah. va- the terrestrial because they have to strip all the music out because they can't pay the music rights for it. Yeah, and it becomes this really hollow thing. Where yeah, there's just not that much meat on the bone. It's true. In fact, uh, now that you say that, it reminds me that um, the uh, the movie preview review I originally did and was intended as a um, as a radio segment to mm. to to syndicate as radio segment. Um, a radio station back home in the Berkshires, the DJ had had reached out to me and said, "Hey, would you like to do some sort of a weekly segment? If you have any ideas, let me know." And uh, that's where, you know, then I, I I went and I saw these movie previews, and that's where the idea came from. So I did it, and I recorded, I think, two or three, and I gave them to him, and he loved them. And he said, uh, he goes, but I can't play them because we have movie theaters that advertise. So I was like, oh, okay, well, a podcast it is then. Do you think he's sad now? I rub it into him every time I see him. <laughs> I don't let him forget it. <laughs> he's a big fan. He's a big fan of the podcast and stuff. And he, you know, he's like, "Yeah, what are you, what are you going to do? I wish we could use it." That's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, any uh, any topic that uh, I haven't asked you about that you uh, wanted to get to while we're speaking? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, yeah, you hit you hit all the bullet points. I think. Well, I'll tell you Sorry, what. I've done, well, well, I've done a whole bunch of podcasts and interviews lately because of the album coming out. You know. Yeah. And I timed I timed my album to come out in early January when it was freezing cold, so that I could specifically sit in my apartment and just do <laughs> interviews and not have to go outside and yet not feel like a total loser who's getting nothing accomplished with his life by staying in. Smart. So, so I've done a bunch of these, but yours has been um, has been has been fun and. Uh, you know, some are, some are better than others, and, and yours has been a good time. And I, I think we you you hit on all the the bullet points. Well, good. If you think of anything else, uh, when you get out here to do some comedy, we'll uh, we'll pick up where we left off. But in the meantime, uh, if people want to uh, catch the unintentionally white album, which, uh, mm-hmm. as you said, was just released last month, um, yes. they can go to your your website. Exactly. Yeah, my website is kevinbartini.com and uh from there you can find the links to the to my albums which are available on iTunes and Amazon. It's actually my second album. The first one is called um Showing, Showing the Horses Who's Boss. Yeah, I see and that both, one on here. Yep. Yeah. Both are available. Um in fact, Showing the Horses Who's Boss you can listen to for free on Spotify. Oh, um nice. And, and if you like it, then I hope you'll go buy the other one. Well, um, I, I actually did buy the Unintentionally White album, and I enjoyed it very oh, much. So, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, but everything's KevinBartini.com. You can find my, you know, my Twitter. Uh, you can find me through that, Facebook, all uh, YouTube, all that kind of stuff, and, um, and, and my calendar. And, and, yeah, please, you know, people feel free to please email or tweet me, and I will let you know when I'm coming to town, put you on the mailing list, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get... To, to get out and um, um, get more work at, at new clubs on the road. I'm, I'm kind of trying 
right now we're doing a thing with my management to exploit this little fact, which is uh, now that I'm warming up the nightly show, I'm the the only person, not only comedian, just the only person in the world who can claim to have been hired as a comedian by Larry Wilmore, John Stewart, and Stephen Colbert. So we're getting the we're you know pitching to the clubs. If these three three guys think he's funny. You know, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to to have him in for a weekend. I think you could do worse. That's so. nice, Pedri. Hey, let me ask you about one other thing. Because as sure. again, as I'm looking through your website here, because sure. uh, one of our uh, friends of the show is uh, Kelly Carlin, and I see that uh, you had a oh, ma- really? major hand. Yeah, and you had a major hand in getting uh, the street renamed after George Carlin in New York. How mm-hmm. did how did that all come about? First of all, I love Kelly. She's one of the greatest. I didn't know I didn't know we had her in common as well. Yeah, yeah, she's terrific. You should go see her show. I it's, have. Uh, I have. She's, have you seen it? She's done it right here in uh, in Mill Valley, right by my house. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, well, no, yeah, so the George Carlin way, it was a, uh, it was basically, it was a three-year campaign that I led to get New York City to name the street where George grew up in, named after him, um, which he grew up uh, here in, in Morningside Heights, which he called White Harlem, and that's the neighborhood I live in in New York. And, um, he had been, he'd been dead for about three years at this point, And I, I, his autobiography had come out and, uh, I read it and he had like two really nice chapters about the neighborhood. And if you're a Carlin fan, class clown and occupation fool, which were my favorite albums were just set in this neighborhood. And, um, but in the book, he actually wrote, the uh, street address of the building he grew up in. So I, you know, it was a nice May afternoon. I took a stroll over to that block, and I was like, I'm going to find that building and just see it, you know. Because hmm. um, for me, my opinion is, if you're a George Carlin fan, West 121st Street in New York City, that's your Abbey Road. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a huge yeah. thing. So I go up there, and uh, I was I was shocked that there was no way anyone would know just walking by that George Carlin had ever set foot on that block, that there was no plaque on the building. The street wasn't named after him. There wasn't even a pastrami sandwich in a deli, you know, <laughs> nothing. And uh, so I just, you know, I got into my mind that that we need to get on New York City and and, and get them to, to hang that, that sign and make that street George Carlin way. Every street in New York is named after somebody. So um, I just, you know... We, we did a little research, and we found out exactly what the process is, and I started, uh, I, well, first thing I did is I reached out to Kelly, and this is how I met her, but I, 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 I reached out to her via Facebook and asked her permission. Um, part of me was expecting her to say, it seemed like such a no-brainer that to say, thanks, but somebody's already cut, got this covered, uh, and, you know, maybe here, here's their contact if they need any help, but... Um, Surprisingly, she got right back to me. She was like, "Oh yes, please do. I think it's a great idea. Nobody's done that yet." So, I started, you know, standing on the corner and getting people to sign my petition, and then um, going through all the red tape and all the bureaucratic uh, slowdowns and, and headaches. And then we had a we had a big public battle with the Catholic Church, and that took added time. And what should have taken about eighteen months ended up taking three years. But the sign is. Uh, the city council uh, unanimously voted to support us, and the sign now hangs on West 121st Street. And we had a, a big ceremony to unveil it with uh, 
Kelly was there and she spoke and George's brother Dennis spoke and Colin Quinn and uh, myself and a couple of others and then we did a big show that night at Caroline's that Kelly hosted and um, the lineup on that one included myself and Colin Quinn, Artie Lang, Judah Friedlander, Dave Attell, um, the, Eddie Brill. The list goes on and on of <laughs> amazing comics that came what, in. What, what a great accomplishment. Yeah, thank you. It was it was really, um, I, I don't know, sometimes it's like with a joke. You can't believe you're the first one to think of it, and then you get the, to reap the benefit of, of doing that bit on stage and it working, and, and you look like a genius. And it's just, it seemed like such a no-brainer. I can't believe nobody thought to do it. But I was the guy who thought of it, and I got to have this really surreal and amazing experience. And... Um, you know, I, I I wouldn't do it for just anybody. I'm not a I'm not a you know not a completely civic minded person. Uh, I vote, but I've never you know I've never marched and I've never tried to get people to sign petitions before. And frankly, I don't know that I would do it again. Uh, in fact, actually, I'll, I'll tell you this: um, I did a lot of uh, press uh, back in October when we were doing the uh, ceremony, a lot of interviews, and I was asked at least a half dozen times, and th- now, this was only this past October, Yeah, I was asked, if you were to do this again, who would you do it for, and uh, I'll let you take a guess, who do you think I said I would do it for? Uh, I'm going to say Bob Newhart. No, Bob Newhart's not from from New York City. Okay, all right. No, who I, who I thought, I said this, uh, it, was, it was just in October, I said it. And I'll just tell you, wow, how different a few months are. But I said, if I were to ever do it again, I think it would be pretty cool to name the street in Brooklyn where the Huxtables house is after <laughs> Bill Cosby. <laughs> yeah, how's, how's that Dimensions Kevin Bartini doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> of all the people, I was like, yeah, Bill Cosby, he deserves it. Oh, John boy. Stewart told me uh, that it's my fault that all this happened to Bill Cosby, <laughs> as I said that in, in the papers. He blames me now. <laughs> they dug too deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, thanks so much for the time. Uh, oh, con- thank you. It's continu- my pleasure. Continued success with, with the career. and look forward to meeting you in person when you get a chance to swing out here to the West Coast. I hope so. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me on. You got it. Take care. All right, take care. Bye. Thanks again to Kevin Bartini for taking the time to chat with us on Suckatash. As promised, here's a clip from Kevin's new comedy CD, the Unintentionally White album. I have been exercising. That's new uh, over the last year. I dropped twenty-five pounds over the last year. That's pretty good. A lot of people tell you what a fat fuck you were after you dropped twenty-five pounds. Hey! Oh, they held it in for a long time, but oh, you fat. The truth is, it was at my wife's insistence. My wife is a personal trainer, and she said I was becoming bad for business. <laughs> she lived in constant fear that we would be walking along the, the Upper West Side one day and bump into one of her clients, and they would just fire her on the spot. And, you know, Look at him. She doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. <laughs> So she says, it's, it's time, you're going to get in shape, and you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you. I'm a personal trainer, and I'm going to train you, and we're going to whip you in shape. That's what she said. She trained me one time, and what I learned from that experience is for the rest of my life, anytime I ever hear anyone tell me a story that involves them having sex with their personal trainer, I'm going to call bullshit right away. 
Let me tell you what, we, she trained me once. We took about three weeks off after that because there is no way I could ever arouse someone sexually who has just seen how little I can lift, how much I look like a 75-year-old woman when I run, and how much I fart and curse when I do any physical activity at all. Oh, motherfucker, I just think I sharted. Oh, God. So do you want to jump on this now or should I? training me and she says, all right, fine, well now you're going to come with me to classes and you're going to have to take some of these, these physical classes. So that's what she decided we were going to do. Um, I took a spin class. How many people have ever done a spin class? By applause. Make some noise. Okay. How many dudes have ever done a spin class? Wow, nobody. Usually I say that and I get like four people, oh, and you say how many dudes have ever done it a second time and that's where the dead silence comes in. <laughs> No dude ever does spin class a second time. And let me tell you why, because I did it. And in fairness to the spin class industry, maybe my seat wasn't adjusted properly. <laughs> let me tell you what. Spin class is what I have always assumed having sex with another man to be like, which was 45 minutes of me being mercilessly pounded in the asshole while techno music and Bristol Spears songs play. After class, I wasn't even sweaty. I just needed a drain in the floor that I could bleed over for a little while. And I held myself and wept like Elizabeth Shue in leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> so we gave up on trying try to take classes, and uh, I decided to go on about it my own way to try to get in shape to do it my own way. And, and here's the secret, and this is what I did. And I'm telling you, this is not a joke. This is exactly what I did, and maybe it would work for you. Um, they don't talk about this a lot, but I would go to the gym and before I would work out, before I would go to the gym, each and every time, I would get very stoned on marijuana. <laughs> it's true. I, it, it, some people, weed motivates you, and, and I do. I get very motivated on it, and it also kind of dulls the sense of pain and fatigue, so it's fucking perfect for the gym, right? I would get really stoned, and I would go in first, and I would just hit the treadmill, and I would walk for like three hours, because that's what you do when you're high anyway, and you just wander for three hours, but, but now I get to watch the fucking Simpsons. It's awesome, right? And then the only other exercise I would do is I would go over and I would hit the crunch machine, right? And I could do like a thousand crunches because I couldn't remember how to count. <laughs> now that I've, uh, once I've lost the weight, the other thing that happens is people start to um, call me up and ask me to do physical things, which is not cool. <laughs> now they just assume that I want to help them move. <laughs> no. I didn't realize that you could be a fat, lazy fuck and nobody would ever have you move. You could drop 25 pounds and every Saturday for the rest of your life is taken up going to some cheap bastard's house, moving all his shit up and down four flights of stairs just so, you know, so he could save $300 on hiring professionals, but he gives you a piece of pizza and a, and a cheap-ass beer, so everything's cool. So you knock over his grandfather's urn. That's what you get! That's a track off the Unintentionally White album from our guest Kevin Bartini, which dropped in January. It's available all over the place, but I am going to recommend that you come to our homepage, SuckatashShow.com, click on the Amazon banner at the top, and buy Kevin's album from them. That way, we all win, because Amazon gets a little profit, Kevin gets a little taste, and we get a shaved percentage of that sale kicked back our way. See, so you're helping everybody. 
We've got our burst of durst coming up where he chats about Hillary Clinton's email troubles. But first, let's take a peek into the tweet sack. Huh. Nothing in here. Now, I'm sure I got some emails the past week or so. I, I always do, but nothing that was of significant note to make it into the sack this past week. Succotashians, try harder, huh? What more can I say? We also didn't get any clicks on our donate button this week, nor did anyone order anything from the Succotashery. And even that Amazon banner at the top of the page didn't get enough clicks to warrant us getting our tiny stipend from them this past month. You know what? I guess I don't feel so bad I'm getting this episode out a little late, after all. What's left? Well, just a roundup of those of you who did take the time to tweet, retweet, star, mention, follow, or DM us on Twitter, or like us on Facebook this past week or so. Everyone Has a Podcast proudly presents The Widowers, Dave Nelson, Thiago Fernandez, The Sibling Rivalry, Shit's Legit, Nick Mauger, Dave Pattison, Keeping Gam, Paul Mercurio, The Kimchi Chronicles, which reminds me I still have to take Samantha Pett's Fire Noodle Challenge, maybe this weekend. Bob Zaney, Dylan Brody, Joel Bogus, Woden, Weird History, James Franco Jr., The Wrong Foot Podcast, David Feldman, San Diego Sabrina, Monster Party, The Angry Chimp, Pass the Gravy Pod, Sal Kalani, Geek vs. Weak, Bill Flaherty, Comedy News, Davy and Dent, Cyborg Black Flag TV, Doug Jones, DAPF Pod Neil, Instagrants 2, Megan M, Valerie Tossi, Colum Grant, Amanda Brass, Salty Language Pro, uh, Podcast, <laughs> sorry about that salty, Larry Bubbles Brown, Heart, uh, Heartbreak Initiative, School Banter, Show Me Your Bits, Vincent Bauscher, Wheelbarrow Full of Dicks, Matthew Pizzana, Cinema Hot Sauce, Jan Ratcliffe, Friends Show, Jocularity Show, Comedian Josh Knight, TV Insight, and Shaq Scott. All right, here's Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about Hillary Clinton's response to the controversy surrounding her private email accounts. It's all fine. Don't worry about it. She's got it covered. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Yeah, she might have used a personal email for government business, but only because she didn't want to carry two blackberries after she lost all that weight running around the world as Secretary of State and was trying to maintain her newly acquired slim profile. She also maintains that all the private messages she did delete were trivial and concerned with planning her daughter's wedding, mother's funeral, or her yoga routines. Yes, all 30,000 of the emails. Which sounds like either a very complicated funeral or she was desperate to advance past the mountain pose and downward dog. Besides, when you think about it, fiscal hawks everywhere should be rejoicing since Hillary was saving the government gobs of money by running her own server. Most surprising was the source that brought the record's discrepancies to light, the leader of that vast right-wing conspiracy, the New York Times. But if we've learned anything over the past couple of years, it's that nothing on the internet ever goes away. So if certain parties from certain congressional committees want to investigate what was really on those emails, we can always get Julian Assange or Edward Snowden or the NSA to dig into their massive stacks and release the files. Hopefully, they'll be able to suppress photos of Hillary in yoga pants on the basis of national security. It's always something with the Clintons, isn't it? Female or email. 
As former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown is wont to say, the E in email stands for evidence. Safe to say that lessons will be learned, and after becoming president, Hillary will switch to an iPhone. For Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. There's the esteemed Mr. Durst, comedian, social commentator, and our friend. Find him lurking on Twitter at Will Durst or at his home site, willdurst.com. All right, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Suckatash and get the hell out of here. We'll be back next time with a Suckatash Clips episode. Till then, see you around, and thanks for passing the Suckatash. You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com. Or call into the Suckatash hotline at our non-toll-free call number, 818-921-7212. Suckatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott. Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash. Goodbye.